Laura and I have lived in New England just about 18 years now, and over these 18 years, I've had a handful of opportunities to see the New England Patriots play at Gillette Stadium. Now, I'm a big NFL football fan. It doesn't really matter who's playing. I just I love to watch the NFL. And what better place to watch good football over the last 20 years than New England? That is up until recently. I loved watching Tom Brady play the quarterback position. He was a master at his craft, the best to ever play the position. He had command on the field. He had command over the fans. And I remember several times just going to see him play at Gillette, 65,000 fans, just seeing his command, his composure, stepping to the line, directing his receivers to go into motion, calling out who his linemen were supposed to block. He just had command over the field and over the fans as well. When there were moments where the fans had to quiet down so that people could hear, his teammates could hear his signals, he'd just do one of these and, and, and the crowd quieted. He was a person his teammates followed, had command on the field, command over the fans. Tom Brady's a, a person people follow. People seek to emulate. Children want to play football like him. Adults want to be like him. He is handsome. He has all the material resources that a person could ever want. My goodness, he models Ugg boots. He's a people people, per, people want to follow. He's a person that people want to follow. I remember watching, though, a 60 Minutes interview of him early on in his career, this is in 2004, right after he'd won his third Super Bowl in four years. And he sat down, I think, Leslie Visser on 60 Minutes, and she looked him in the eyes and she said, Tom, are you satisfied? And I'll never forget this. Here's this guy who had everything at the height of his career, a superstar. And he looks at her and he says, there must be more. There's got to be more to life than this. And I was so struck as a former football player myself. This guy shared the ache of every human heart for true satisfaction that no fame or glory on earth can meet. He expressed the longing inside every human heart for true fulfillment, for true satisfaction. Surely there must be more. That's the cry of every single human heart, if we're honest. This morning, we continue our Christmas sermon series entitled, Why Did Jesus Come? That is the question of the season. That is, in fact, the question of life. Why did Jesus come historically? A real person who wore real clothes, who had real conversations, who did real work. Why did he come? Well, we're letting Jesus answer that question himself, because in the four Gospels, Jesus had several I have come purpose statements. He outright tells us why he came. And so over the last few weeks, we've been examining some of those I have come statements. So two weeks ago, we examined Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save people lost in sin and death. Last Sunday, we considered another statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew. This is more of an invitation where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
So Jesus came to give weary, sin-laden souls rest in him. This morning, we explore another claim of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. I have come that you might have life, life abundant, satisfying life. Jesus came to meet the ache in Tom Brady's heart and every other person that has ever lived. Surely there must be more. Yes, Jesus offers it. He came to provide what everyone is searching for, and the vast majority of us don't even know it. Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And the Bibles that we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 896. Page 896. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the Scripture, we'd love to give you a free Bible in the lobby. There's several bookshelves. The one closest to the restroom has several black hardback Bibles. Take one of those. If a friend needs one, by all means, please take one for your friend. I'll read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. This is Jesus speaking here in John 10. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." What we find in this passage is an extended metaphor that would be commonly understood by the people of Jesus' day. It's a shepherding metaphor. These folks were very familiar with agricultural happenings in society and animal husbandry. This is how they made their living. So Jesus speaks in symbolic 
language utilizing the imagery of shepherding. He is the good shepherd, and people are the sheep, and he's teaching us truths about how he interacts with his sheep through this extended metaphor. Early on in the metaphor, though, we're introduced to a problem in the pen, aren't we? What's the, the problem? There's a danger in the sheep pen. Something present in the sheepfold that if the sheep go after will harm them, will hurt them. There's a problem in the sheep pen. Imposters have invaded the sheep pen and threatened to harm them. So this morning, we'll organize our time in these verses by working with this shepherding metaphor, working with this imagery, and I want to draw two truths, draw out two truths for you that we can apply to our lives. Here's the first truth. Imposters offer life but deliver death. Imposters offer life but deliver death. Jesus introduces us to the imposters of the sheep pen in verse 1. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs over by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The sheepfold or the sheep pen that Jesus mentions here would be sort of a shared yard, a courtyard, if you will, with many neighbors abutting that courtyard. And most of those neighbors were sheep herders, and so they would share this courtyard, but there would be one gate that you'd have to go through to enter the courtyard to shepherd your sheep. And so that's the, that's the sheep fold that Jesus is, is working with here. And we see that the imposter doesn't go through the appropriate doorway. No, he climbs over the, the wall and gets in, unwelcomed. And we see that the imposters attempt to allure the sheep. They masquerade as true shepherds, calling out to the sheep, wooing them with their words. Verse 5, a stranger the sheep will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And though these sheep don't follow in this instance, the imposters continue to call out to them, seeking to ensnare them with speech, to woo them with their words. And all the while, their intent is to harm the sheep. As we see in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal to kill and to destroy. And once in their clutches, the sheep will be crushed. There's a problem in the pen. Imposters have invaded the pen and seek to hurt the sheep. Well, who are these imposters? Well, one category of imposters that fits the immediate context here are the false shepherds of Israel. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes that were charged to feed God's people God's word, to protect them and to teach them, served as false shepherds who in fact harmed God's sheep. Facilitators of all the temple activities, all of Israel's religion, Prominent, powerful people intended to shepherd God's people, but over and over again, in both the Old Testaments and in the Gospels, you see them abusing that authority and harming the sheep. Instead of helping them, they harmed them. Instead of caring for the sheep, they crushed them. We find evidence of this harm if you just rewind 
in John one chapter earlier to, to the narrative in John chapter 9. Well, what's going on in John chapter 9? Again, context is always helpful in understanding the passage at hand. You need to read what comes before and what comes after. In John chapter 9, we see Jesus miraculously gives sight to a blind man, a man blind from birth. And he's called before the religious authorities to testify of who healed him. How did you get healed? He once was blind, but now he sees. They want to know who healed him. They know who healed him. Jesus did. They're seeking to trap Jesus, to accuse Jesus. You see, Jesus threatens to upend their religious establishment. They threaten to throw people out of their synagogue who follow Jesus. John chapter 9, verse 32, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, thrown out of the people of faith. These are Israel's leaders. They're religious leaders intended to protect and to provide and to teach God's sheep. Yet they're harming God's people by refusing the work of the Messiah. Well, this healed man has a dilemma in John chapter 9. What should he say about his healing? How should he testify? Well, we see as the narrative unfolds, he does the right thing. He testifies to the truth. He says, one thing I do know, that though I was once blind, now I see. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man, that is Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. The man who's been healed knows the power of Jesus, has experienced the power of Jesus, and he testifies to the power of Jesus. And what happens to him? They hear his testimony, and they cast him out of the synagogue. So notice what's happening. Israel's shepherds intended to care for the sheep are casting out the sheep, are harming the sheep because of their jealousy over Jesus. These are religious leaders called to pastor, but instead they persecute God's people. They are imposters who've entered the sheepfold of God's people and they've brought spiritual harm. Like the metaphor we see in John chapter 10, they are the thieves who come in to steal, to kill, and destroy. The irony is God's very own shepherds are doing the harm in this passage. That's one category of imposters, religious people. What Jesus communicates here early in John 10 is that there's danger in the sheep pen. Friends, there are influences in our day, false teaching, false influences that will harm us in our spiritual walk, in our spiritual journeys. If we run after these influences, if we build our lives upon these teachings, we will find ourselves empty, leading down a pathway that does not lead to life, but rather leads to death. The greatest danger in our sphere of life is the deceptive nature of sin. We use that word all the time, what is sin? Sin is any thought, word, or deed that is contrary to God's character and God's commands. Sin is any thought, word, or deed that's contrary to God's character and God's commands. And what sin does is it offers us fulfillment, but it leaves us empty. It's deceptive. Sin never satisfies, though it's so tempting, making us think that it will. Sin enslaves people, 
It promises life, but in the end, it always leads to death. Sin entered the world through the deceptive work of the greatest imposter ever. Satan is the original imposter who scaled the wall and entered God's original sheep pen, the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, in the form of a serpent, invades God's garden and deceives Adam and Eve with his words. Notice how he allures them with his speech. He says to Eve, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What does Satan do? He casts this shadow of doubt on God's character in Eve's mind. He makes God out to be a miser, a withholder of good from his children. That is the origin of sin. Hmm, is God really good? Does he have my best interests in mind, or should I kind of take matters into my own hands? It's dangerous. It's the whisper of Satan. Did God really say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden because the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, what does Satan say? He deceptively says this, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The deception continues. The serpent, the imposter, offers what seems to be life-satisfying life. Notice what he says, you will be like God. You will have insight and authority like God. That's what he's offering Eve. That's what he offers us. You won't need God. You'll be your own God. Have it your way. That's the way of sin. Live independently from God. But in the end, life without God leads to death. You see, God created all of us to live in intimate relationship with him. That alone provides satisfaction and purpose and meaning. C.S. Lewis says it best in his book, Mere Christianity. I love this quote. I've been thinking on this through the holidays. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. C.S. Lewis was a Brit. We don't say petrol. We seem to need to get gas. We need to get petrol in the UK. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He, is, he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. What do human beings do? We run and try to dump sugar into the tank, and it leaves us broken down on the road every time. There's only one fuel that we run on, and it's relationship with God. We were designed to run on Him. So this is a critical moment in the very first sheepfold. Why am I going back to this? This is, in, in biblical theology, this is the origin of what Jesus talks about in John 10. The original sheepfold, the Garden of Eden the place where the imposter first came. A moment that would set the course for the rest of humanity. Well, whose voice would Adam and Eve ultimately obey? Tragically, not the good shepherd. Not the good God who gave them good commands. They follow the way of the serpent. 
They take and eat of the fruit. They follow the voice of the imposter, and humanity's trajectory is changed to one of ruin and destruction and spiritual death. They seek independence from God. This is the essence of sin. And it has cascaded down every generation since. We are innately born sinners. We know instinctively how to sin. Many of us are parents here. This is a simple illustration. Did you have to teach your kids how to to disobey? I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old at home. He wants to do everything that his older brother and older sister are doing. He wants their toys, and when he takes their toys, he gets angry and all red in his little pale face. Who taught him how to hoard toys? Laura didn't. I didn't. He knew how to do that innately. We have to teach him how to do what's right. We have to teach him how to share. We have to teach him how to think about other people first. He already knows how to think about himself first. We're born into sin. Where did that come from? Adam and Eve sinned, and it distorted our DNA ever since then, and we're all sinners innately. That's the nature of our lives. You don't have to teach sin. It's instinctively known. Everyone disobeys God. Everyone lives for self. Everyone departs him and his good commands to live for themselves. And as we walk our own way, apart from God, living in sin, we are unsatisfied. And we have to come to terms with this. Again, because sin is feeding us all a lie. Our culture is feeding us a lie. That if you would just acquire more, or have more relationships, or have more titles, educationally, occupationally, you're going to be complete inside. Just follow the people who pursue those things. Are they satisfied? That's why I was so struck by Tom Brady. I was a quarterback. I wanted to be Tom Brady. Thinking like, oh, that's it. You get No, that is not it. It is not satisfying and it never will. Just follow the people that you emulate and ask them, ask yourself in interviews and in written document, documents about them, are they satisfied? No, they're not. We turn to all other kinds of things to fill us up. We look to lesser things for satisfaction. We try to squeeze significance out of people, experiences, substances, titles, and it never quite completes us. This is the desperate path of spiritual emptiness apart from God. Can I ask you, what in your life are you currently running to for satisfaction? What in your life are you currently trying to squeeze ultimate significance out of? And friends, these can be good things. God gives us lots of good things to enjoy in life. But the problem is we elevate good things above the greatest thing. We take the good gifts that he gives and we worship them above him. We supplant him from his throne. Idolatry is often just elevating just good things in our lives. What are the good things that you are elevating above the gift giver? Is it your job? How do you approach your job? Is it your identity? If it was stripped away from you, would you feel purposeless? Is it hard for you at the dinner table with your spouse or with your children or with good friends to turn off your iPhone and turn off email? Or are you constantly looking for notifications or the next task to do occupationally? I love what I do. I love being a pastor. It's what I'm wired to do. I love it. And it's hard to turn it off 
and it's easy to find my identity in it, how well I think I'm doing as a pastor. Pastoring will never fulfill me. My calling as a pastor can never complete me as a person. Your calling, the word vocation in Latin is vocare, it's calling. All of us have a calling. All of us have a calling. That calling can never complete you. Only God can. So are you turning to your job for something that you really only can find in him? Is it a relationship, a dating or marital relationship that you have where you're elevating the person to a position that he or she was never intended to occupy in your life? How do you think about and approach your relationships? Is it a relationship, a marital one or a dating one that you don't have, that you're elevating to a position in your life of ultimate significance? How are you seeking to find in a person only what you can find in God? Is it your children? This is dangerous territory. My mother used to say, Dane, don't you mess with my babies. Don't you mess with my chicks. Well, I'm going to do that a little bit here. Laura and I have spent a whole lot of time thinking about how we approach our children. Oh, they're precious gifts. They're also sinful. But they're precious, too. I mean, as sweet as my little boy is, and when he gets red, like soon after he's calmed down and we're snuggling him again. They're precious gifts, but they're not ultimate. And Laura and I have struggled to to not build our lives around our kids, their activities, their performances, their accomplishments. In all of us as parents, just be honest, we want to live vicariously through our kids, for them to be what we weren't, for them to succeed in the areas that we failed. Danger, parents, danger, Dane. I'm speaking to myself here. Because when we do that, in the end, we will find ourselves empty and unsatisfied, and you know what? We'll find our kids crushed under the load of an expectation they were never intended to bear. Your kids are a gift from the ultimate gift giver. Don't try to find in them what only God can provide. Love them, shepherd them. They are not the little mini Messiah. You need to point them to the Messiah that they need to save their heart. You don't seek to find in them what you can only find in God. Shepherd them, love them, teach them to follow Jesus. And in so doing, you'll be satisfied and you'll point them to the satisfier. What in your life are you currently turning to to find satisfaction for your thirsty soul? What in your life are you desperately trying to squeeze significance out of like a wet rag? There's a better way. There's a better way. Jesus points us to the way in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Massive contrast here. Imposters offer life but deliver death. That's truth number one. Here's truth number two. Jesus offers life and delivers it abundantly. Imposters offer life but deliver death. Jesus offers life and delivers it abundantly. What does this abundant life look like? What does it mean that when you follow Jesus, you will amass abundant possessions and acquire health, wealth, and pros prosperity? No, that's false teaching. That's one of the influences that you can find in the church today. That is the church nationally and the church certainly internationally. 
the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is spreading like wildfire and leading people to hell, leading them away from the Savior. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not speaking in material terms here. The abundant life that he speaks of is a spiritual life with him, relationship with him. Abundant life is all about the salvation that he provides us as sinners, undeserving. He welcomes us in to relationship with him. He provides us a pathway to know him. Notice what Jesus says immediately after this abundant life quote. He unpacks what he means by abundant life in John 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus provides life and life abundant by giving up his own life. That's the irony. Jesus gives up his life so that we can have life. Jesus left his eternal glorious throne and he inhabited our existence. That's the incarnation. And he lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He rose victoriously and ascended to the right hand of the Father in his glory. But he left it to pursue us. He gave up his life to give us life. That's the abundant life that Jesus is speaking to here. He's a good shepherd. And like a good shepherd who will pursue his sheep in the predicament, in the problems that they find themselves in, that they get themselves into, he goes after them and takes them out of the bramble bushes or the rocky crags or the cliffs. He's there, he goes, he risks life and limb, gives life and limb to rescue us from our predicaments. From the start of Beacon Community Church, we have thought through strategic, strategic ways to intersect life with people in our community so that we can introduce them to Jesus, so we can genuinely befriend them and have conversations with them where we can introduce them to Jesus. And so from the day the church, two months before the church started, we started going down to the commuter rail stop in Belmont. There's two commuter rail stops here. There's a lot of commuters, people who travel into Cambridge and Boston every day. And we knew people were there, so we thought, well, why don't we just go and meet them there on their way to work? We'll provide a hot cup of Starbucks coffee, and we'll smile, and we'll enter conversations with people who desire and people who walk by us with earbuds in. We won't do it. it. Just We'll smile at them and say, have a good day. It's a wonderful way. We still do it to this day from about 6.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. during the rush hour on Wednesday mornings. It's a wonderful time. Early on, I, I met a man who would become a good friend of, of ours. And he asked me, so, so what do you do for work? Implying clearly you can't make money giving free coffee away. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor of this church that, 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 that we're serving right now, that we're talking about. And he looked at me, he kind of cringed a little bit, and he said, I've, the word pastor has always rubbed me the wrong way. Can I be honest with you? I said, well, sure. I said, could I ask you a question? Wait, could, would you mind like, sharing more about why it rubs you the wrong way? He's like, well, I'm Jewish. And I know the, the kind of historical background of the word pastoring. It implies the people in your congregation are sheep. And sheep aren't very bright. And I thought to myself, exactly. That's the point. We need a shepherd to help us because we get in predicaments. This is what Jesus does here. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that were in the worst of predicaments. And friends, you and I 
are in the worst of predicaments because of our sin. It's a dangerous predicament that leads us away from God if we're not rescued. And this is the good news of the good shepherd. He lays down his life. He rescues us from that great predicament. This is what he does. All of us fallen short. All of us are sinners. And we stand in need of a Savior, one who will come and lift us up out of the miry bog that we're in and set our feet on solid ground. The only way you can be saved from that course of sin that leads to death is by turning your eyes upon Jesus, looking to him in faith, and he will rescue you. He loves you more than you even know. Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him, and he will rescue you, forgive you of all of your sins, and you enter a relationship with him. It's a glorious gift, the greatest gift. Jesus died for you. He willingly died for you. Notice, just follow the, the rest of this passage with me, how many times Jesus says he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You know what's happening here. Repetition is a teaching tool. He's making it abundantly clear how we get abundant life. He lays his life down four times over. I lay it down. I lay it down. I lay it down. I lay it down. No one took it from him. Jesus was not the unsuspecting victim of tragic circumstances in Jerusalem. His crucifixion didn't surprise him. No one snatched his life away from him. He wasn't like the unsuspecting victim of this mob that got out of control in Jerusalem. He knew what was happening at every turn. Before he even got to Jerusalem, he knew what would happen to him. He willingly laid down his life in accordance with the plan of his father to save you and me. He willingly did it all because he loves us. That's the nature, that's the heart of the good shepherd. If you trust in him, all of your sins are forgiven. And you're satisfied. You are secure in him. You don't have to run and search the ends of the earth to find something that will fulfill you. You already have it in Christ. You belong to him. You are his sheep you find satisfying life with him and him alone. Jesus offers life and delivers it abundantly now, but notice also in John 10, Jesus offers life and delivers it abundantly forever. There's an eternal reality here that Jesus is speaking to. Notice what he says in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And he says in verse 18, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Take it up. He means come alive again. Resurrect from the dead. He's pointing to the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection is the assuring work of our salvation, our, our forgiveness. It's vindication. Jesus didn't stay dead. He came alive again, conquering sin and death, assuring us of our salvation and forgiveness through his work. But this assurance of our forgiveness isn't the only result of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection ensures our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is called by the Apostle Paul a first fruits. 
of many more to come. A first fruits of a harvest, meaning evidence, proof that more fruit is coming. Jesus is the first fruits of many other resurrections. Who else is getting resurrected? Anybody who will trust in him will also be a part of that resurrection harvest. His resurrection from the grave ensures your resurrection from the grave and eternal life if you trust in him. He's the first fruits of a great harvest of resurrections that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus will talk about one chapter later. We've examined the pre-context. What's the post-context of John 10? It's John 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus offers life abundant now when you trust in him and life abundant forever when you trust in him. There's a now reality and a later reality of life with Jesus. Every human heart longs for this eternal life. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has put eternity into the hearts of people. What does that mean? Think about that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, God has put eternity, he has implanted eternity into all of us. What that means is you know instinctively that you were made for more. You know instinctively when you face the reality of sickness and death in your own life or in the loved one's life, it's not the way it was supposed to be. I was made for more. And death cuts that off. It's not the way things were supposed to be. When a loved one dies, why do we mourn? Why do we ache inside? Because we long for more life with them. At the end of our lives, why do we long for more? Because God has put eternity into our hearts. I shared some of this story with you before. Uh, a pillar of faith in my family was my grandfather. My dad's dad. We called him Pap, Pap Helsing. Just an amazing man who, who taught me what it looked like to follow Jesus, taught my father he died in February 2011, right before, a month before his 91st birthday. In 1988, he became a widower. His wife died due to ALS, just a terrible, debilitating disease. He never remarried. And when he would talk about Grandma Helsing, his wife, years later, it was like his love for his wife grew in his widowerhood. And so when he would share stories about her, you could just hear his love, his affection, the tenderness in their relationship. It wasn't a perfect relationship by any means, but he loved his wife. And for 23 years, he lived as a widower. And I remember in 2005, we had just been married, and Laura wanted to host Thanksgiving meal with all my family and extended family. And so Pap Helsing came over, and he's he, he's watching Laura at the end of the meal intently. And Laura's over at our china cabinet putting the good dishes away. You know, sometimes we, we break out the good dishes for holiday meals. And so she, she's putting those good dishes away. And he just watches her intently. And then after she put those dishes away, he said to her, you know, Laura, I watched my wife put dishes in there hundreds and hundreds of times. And it was as if as he was looking at her, he could like see his wife do it. And we can like fill in the next, oh, oh, did you see her one more time do that? Why do we ache for more life? Because God has put eternity into our hearts. We know 
that we were made for more. And when death cuts it off, we know something tragic has happened. That's the nature of life in a fallen world that has been stained by death. We know we were meant to live on. And friends, Jesus Christ provides it. God's put eternity into our hearts. Sin stole life with him. Jesus restores life with him now and forever. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Anyone who trusts in him will so resurrect from the grave. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to offer life now and offer life forever for all those who will trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision of a plan of salvation that culminates in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he gave his life so that we could have life. Lord, all of us, as we take an honest inventory of our own hearts, we can see that we, we are tempted, prone to walk in ways, follow things that will not save, will not satisfy us. And in your grace, you often lead us down dead-end pathways so that we are awakened to our need of you. So I pray for myself, pray for my friends here to take inventory this season, today, and seek to turn from a way of emptiness and turn to, to a way of fullness in Christ. Thank you for your, your grace. Help us to follow you and invite others to follow you to find life now and life forever. In Christ's name, amen.